started a uh, sermon series last year on Isaac, and I had that brought to my attention yesterday morning. Hey, you going to finish up your uh, series on Isaac? Yeah, I hope so one day. Uh, but um, uh, sabbatical, and then a month away from here, and then COVID-19 has really played havoc with trying to keep a series together if you're not actually the guy preaching regularly. So I'm thankful for Jeremy and his faithful preaching through the Gospel of Luke. That has been really encouraging. I remember when he started that, he was concerned that, man, should I like try and knock it out in a year? I said, I don't care how long you take. I just, I, I want to hear God's Word. You know, Don't gloss over everything, just... Anchor, anchor in it and preach it. So two years, I think we're coming up on two years in Luke so far. It's been great. Um, today and, and next month, I will be, and hopefully in September also, I'll be preaching through Romans 12 and Romans 13. Uh, these are passages that deal with the saints' relationships within the church the saints' relationship to the outside world, which is what we're going to be talking about today, and the saints' relationship to government. And I think in our current environment, it would be helpful to think on these things. And what better place than Paul to a church in a community with an emperor that was pretty hostile to the peculiar nature of the Christian. One of our nation's founding liberties, religious liberty, is being threatened today at every turn. I hope you are aware of that. Um, the skirmishes are, are not growing more and more random. They're not peculiar. They seem like every week there is a new assault against Christian liberty. It's not merely about baking cakes. It's not merely about Catholic ministries that want to have adoptions for children. It's not merely Catholic ministries that are wanting to not have to fund abortions. Yes, it is those things, but it is more. Our constitutional protection to believe and live out your faith in all spheres of life is being challenged by a new liberty that is being exalted, and that is sexual liberty. Will we be required to affirm in a human being that which is contrary to their biology before long? Will we be required to affirm or celebrate relationships that we know are not only in rebellion against God, but also, for that same reason, these relationships are dangerous and damaging to the individuals themselves? Individuals for which we care deeply. That which is essential to human flourishing, a right standing with the living God, is now seen as toxic and contrary to the good of the individual. And you, as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, represent that worldview, that toxic worldview. We're getting hit from the courts, we're getting hit from governors, we're getting hit from legislatures and lawmakers, 
from corporations and companies. Good is evil and evil is good. And you are in the way. You stand in the highway, Christian. With all of this going on, will you be run over by the right racing toward the iron fist of tyranny or will you be run over by the left aching for anarchy? In truth, it doesn't matter. And that's the point of Romans today. We are, in the middle of the highway, the exit beacon. Get off of this highway. This insane venture we are on. Jesus has called us to be salt and light in this world and to point the lost to Him. Leave the highway to hell. We're ambassadors. We are called to be the people of Christ. We are called to hold cities and states and countries accountable to justice. Our responsibility to call people to Christ and our responsibility to hold nations accountable will highlight our black and white understanding of life to a world that is increasingly seeing things in gray. We are ambassadors in a hostile nation. So how do we live that out? So today we're going to look at what Paul says regarding how the people of Christ's church should relate to those who are hostile to God's word. Now take joy because what I'm about to tell you to do, you can't do. I'll tell you right up front. Some things we hear in God's word and we know we can't accomplish it right out of the gate. Be holy because I the Lord am holy. And you look in the mirror and go, Okay. But there are some things we read in God's Word and we think, I can do that. But in truth, you can't. Try and sneeze with your eyes open. Stick your elbow in your ear. You can't do it. You go, I can do, I can do that until you sit there. No, I can't do that. Husbands, love your wives. Oh, I can do that. Is that right, husband? How good are you? Still do it. Hey, keep those Ten Commandments. The rich young ruler went, I'm keeping them all. And he went away sorrowful because he wasn't. When we come across the commandments of the New Testament, we really ought to take a deep breath and let it all out, knowing that I cannot keep these. I cannot accomplish these. In my own strength. So this sermon today is going to be directed to believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. For those of you here who may not know Christ, and I'm never going to assume that the saints I've seen over and over again know him, so I'm going to exhort you to consider. For those who do not know Christ, this section on commands and exhortations is going to be frustrating. If you load them into your backpack and attempt to scale the mountain, you're going to get around one bend and go, Dude, I'm tired. I want to take it off. You're frail. 
You battle the flesh. Your nature is opposed to what we're going to talk about today. You're going to live a life of eternal conflict and frustration. But saint, the same is true for you. You cannot carry this backpack either. But we are commanded to so do, but in reality, we so cannot on our own. Let these words make your ears tingle. Apart from me, you can do nothing. No one comes to the Father except through me. Not me, Jesus. Jesus is saying these words. You want to bear fruit for the glory of God? Jesus says, abide in me. I can't be saved apart from Christ. In truth, I cannot live apart from Christ and apart from his power. I can't. To grow in Christ's likeness, to grow in my relationship with Christ, I need Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. And this is why Paul told the Corinthian church, we have this treasure, this external relationship with the living God in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. 2 Corinthians 4, 7. So saying as we move forward and we jump into the deep waters of Romans, I want you to drink deep of one more word here where he says, it is God who moves in you to will and to do according to his good pleasure. So it is his power in you to do these things. So in Paul, where are we? We're in chapter 12. Romans chapter 1 through chapter 8 is extraordinary doctrine and theology for helping us to understand man's state apart from God, the glory of his salvation, and our sanctification in Christ. Romans 9 through 11, Paul is wrestling with his heartbreak over the fact that his people, the Jews, don't get it. But God is sovereign even in that. And Paul rejoices. And that brings us to Romans chapter 12. Today, how do we live with those who are hostile toward us? In August, Romans 13, how do we live under a hostile government? And then we're going to go back to the start of Romans chapter 12, hopefully in September, and look at how does the church live amongst one another, fallen people that we are, for God's glory. So Romans 12 vaults off really in the first two verses, where he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. I mean, think, this is an offering. What is the offering? You. Based on the extraordinary stuff, your salvation in Romans 1 through 8, offer yourself to God as a living sacrifice. Holy and acceptable. That's your spiritual worship. Then he exhorts, do not be conformed to this world. Do not be pressed into the mold of this world. 
but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern, understand, comprehend, grasp what is the will of God. What is good, acceptable, and perfect. With that as our foundation, we go into Romans 12, 14 through 21. And today, Christians being transformed by the finished work of Christ through the truth of the Word and the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives, we will see how we are to show God's love for the world by simply caring. Let's pray. Father, help us, guard us, and guide us in your word. Be high and lifted up. Exalt yourself in your word today. Be glorified. Be magnified by the power of the Holy Spirit. Guard our hearts and minds. Help us all, each one, to be discerning. Father, guard my lips and the meditations of my heart that you would be exalted in this place. In Jesus' name, amen. First thing we're going to see here, there's, there, it's kind of groups of three. There are kind of groups of three things that Paul gets to, three groups of three. Uh, the very extensive outline is on the back of your bulletin, so you can kind of see where I'm going, tracking along. You can tick it along to see uh, when I'm about to be finished. Um, but the first thing we see in verses 14 through the first part of 16 is we are called to be a people who care. Paul says to the church at Rome, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. So the first way he's showing how to care for a world that's pretty hostile toward you is to bless those who beset you. Bless those who are persecuting you. Well, you, you know, you hear that word, bless. It's, we're in a church after all. That's one of those churchy words that you hear. What's it mean, bless you? You hear it when somebody sneezed. Oh, you know, bless my soul, you know, lady in the south might say. The word is eulogeo, from which we get eulogy. Whenever you have a word with the EU in front of it, you, um, like eugenics, good genes. You know, trying to have good genes, eugenics. Euthanasia, good death. You with Thanos, for you Avengers fans, Thanos, death. Euthanasia, good death. Eulogeo, eulogeo is good word. Typically, again, we hear it at the end of a person's life. But Paul is exhorting them to put in a good word. Bless those who persecute you. Now the natural response is not. And Paul says, don't curse. Well, that's going to be your natural thing. If somebody is flicking on your noggin, you're going to haul off and bop them. That requires no effort. That's just your flesh. What's going on in our culture today? The natural response comes out. We've lost the bridles for our mouths. 
When I am persecuted, it is natural for a root of bitterness to take hold deep in my soul. This is why the writer of Hebrews in chapter 12, verses 14 through 15 says, Strive for peace with everyone, and for the holiness, strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That's natural when somebody is persecuting us. Paul says, don't do that. He says, bless them. Put in a good word. Proverbs, man, go through Proverbs. Read a chapter of Proverbs a day. Pick a month, do it. Preferably if the month has 30 days, it works out perfectly. And make a note, make a little T beside every verse that has to do with how you are to speak to people. It's full of how our speech should be. Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty. And he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city, who rules his spirit, who bridles his tongue. Proverbs 16.32. This is the stuff of Proverbs. A soft answer turns away wrath. But a harsh word, cursing, stirs up anger. A word fitly spoken, that was 15.1, Proverbs 15.1. A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. That is blessing somebody. A word fitly spoken. Now, I can bless, I can say a good word to somebody's face. But I can also put in a good word behind their back. It's easy to go, oh, yeah, you're wonderful. You're a great person. And then walk away and go, that boss. And you don't. You're a hypocrite. But Paul calls the church through the power of a transformed life in Jesus Christ to not be that way. To bless them, yes, to their face. To bless them also as you speak to other people. That doesn't mean, we were talking about this before church, that doesn't mean you agree with them necessarily, but you honor them in their dignity as creatures of the living God, as those created in His image. Peter, we read it, said honor the emperor. Honor the emperor. That's Nero who used Christians as butane lighters for his garden. You know what? If if I really truly want to speak a good word about somebody, I have to grasp their situations and their perspectives. Yesterday we were talking about the American Revolution. And we think of it from the Americans' perspective. Ah, the British were over here. British, you know, throwing the tea in the harbor. We were right and we were justified. Why did the British tax the Americans? Because they were protecting the Americans. And the Americans were not paying a lick of it. And so the British were trying to recoup some of their money. And you go, oh, hmm. Well, that's a little bit different. 
whole big issue besides that, but it helps you to understand the other man's perspective. Peter told husbands to live with their wives with understanding. Same idea. So if I want to speak a good word about somebody, somebody who's persecuting me, I, I need to look at them as something other than the enemy. Breaks my heart when I hear saints state something like, I just don't understand how someone can do such a thing or think such a thing. I go, have you looked in your heart lately? I don't have any trouble with that. I look in my own heart and go, I'm surprised they're not worse. A wretched man that I am. Praise God for the power of the Holy Spirit. So in doing these things, I show my care. Bless and do not persecute. The other way he shows, suggests that we show we care is to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. I want to lavish God's love in the highs and lows. I want to empathize. Now, you might think, ah, it's easy to rejoice with somebody who, you know, something good has happened to them. Rejoice with those who are rejoicing. Eh. Sometimes it's like, oh, why didn't I get that? You know, some guy got the promotion and not you. Or some guy you don't like very much, uh, he just um, made a lot of money. Got an inheritance to come in, and now he's driving a Lamborghini to work. And you're driving your little lemon. Our pride may intervene in us rejoicing with other people. Again, Proverbs says, Do not rejoice when your enemy falls, and let not your heart be glad when he stumbles, lest the Lord see it and be pleased, and turn away his anger from him. Paul, again, contrary to nature, maybe our, our sinful nature, calls us to rejoice with those who rejoice. Truly rejoice. Recognize the good that has come to them. In truth, saint, you may be the one who is praising God for the good that has come to that person because they're probably not going to. And God gets glory as you rejoice with those who rejoice. For those with a heart of mercy, they will likely find it easier to weep with those who weep. We are called in God's word to go to the house of mourning for this is the end of all men in Ecclesiastes 7. We come alongside a hurting co-worker. We send notes of encouragement and comfort. And there's much to say about the fine art of weeping with those who weep. Could be sermons full. Counselors' offices are there for this very reason. Just a few words, though. As we weep with those who weep, let your words be rare. Let your presence be prominent. Okay, Sit with them. Be with them. Be there. Be seen. Let your shoulder be strong. 
and soft for them. Maybe your faith that carries them through the dark days. We lavish God's love when we care by empathizing. We lavish God's love also when we strive to live in harmony with one another. Now this section from 14 to 21 is primarily the world. You know, our relationship with the world. But in this, he says to live in harmony with one another. Now typically when you come to the one another's, it is within the church. Live in harmony with one another. The word harmony immediately makes you think of singing uh, in choirs and such. In the church, generally speaking, we sing in unison. If you go to a church of Christ, they'll be singing in harmony. Uh, if somebody is out there singing random notes, the harmony like goes away and it's like bad noise. It's like hitting a bad chord on a guitar. It just Everybody kind of winces. But when people are singing harmony together, uh, for me it's weird uh, because I don't, I don't hear it. Some people hear it very naturally uh, and are able to sing it very naturally. But it's a beautiful thing when people are singing in harmony. And it's interesting that the ESV translates this word harmony because that's not what the word means. <laughs> uh, it means of one mind. And uh, you'll find that in the King James and the New American Standard. Uh, it means of being in one mind, of being one accord. If you look over in uh, chapter 15 of Romans, verse 5, you see a great picture of what this does mean. He says, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony, one mind, with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus. That is how we as saints are able to live in harmony or in accord with one another because we are first in accord with the Lord Jesus Christ. How do I live in accord with the Lord Jesus Christ? I live in accord with what His Word says to me. I have to be in accord with His Word. And if I am in accord with His Word, then we can appeal to the Word together and be in accord with one another. We can disagree about little things that are peripherals in the faith and agree on the foundational and the fundamentals. Jesus told the disciples in John 13, 35, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So in this section on, of unbelievers, the fact that we live in harmony with one another is a beacon to the outside world that you guys are odd. Especially when we are getting along with people whom the world thinks we probably ought not get along with. Ooh, you guys are of a different political party. You guys are of a different color. You guys are of a different whatever. Age different. You got, you got old people and young people in your church. That's weird. No, that's the church. So how do I flesh this out? Well, I'm not troubled by minor differences. 
I protect my weaker brother. I give grace to a brother who has biblical liberty. And we must exhort and encourage and abide together. Bottom line, this first point here, Paul exhorts the world or exhorts the church as we go into the world. One of the best witnesses you have is to care. The next thing he exhorts in 16, uh, middle of 16 through 18, is to live peaceably with all. Let's pick up in the middle of 16. He says, do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all. Peaceably. Live peaceably with all, as far as it depends on you. Now, we think of peaceably as being the absence of war or conflict. Tranquility. Tranquility base, the eagle has landed. There's probably no place more tranquil than the surface of the moon. But it's dead. There's nothing there. Nothing's going to grow there on the surface of the moon. So tranquility in and of itself is not necessarily a great thing. But here on the earth, tranquility needs to be cultivated. A garden area requires work to make it beautiful and serene and restful. So what that means, live peaceably with all, is it's going to require labor. And Paul thankfully adds this caveat for us, as far as it depends on you. As far as it depends on you. Because this is not an easy thing. You will be hated if you are living for the gospel of Jesus Christ. You're four chapters into Acts after the ascension, the Pentecost speech of Peter, healing of a lame man, and boom, persecution starting right out of the gate. We leave Acts and Paul's in prison after beatings and shipwrecks. Jesus left us this example, this affirmation, this bedrock truth that if the world hates you, Know that it has hated me before it hated you. And if that, if, and if that it hated him, it will hate you also. John 15, 8. You know, saints, we have had it really pretty easy here in the United States for 200 plus years. Been pretty homogeneously a Christian nation until the last century as things began to unravel and now it is a post-christian nation the restraint of the gospel no longer binds the hearts and minds of the masses and the wind of whim and will continue to sweep souls away from the savior and you will be hated conflict will come in this arena now sometimes you're not going to have any choice about the conflict coming in acts chapter 17 in thessalonica uh, the rabble starts looking for Paul and his, his fellow travelers to drag him out for preaching the gospel. And they go to the house of Jason. 
and Paul and his fellow travelers aren't there. Whatever. So they take Jason and drag him out of his home and take him before the magistrates. Jason's going, ah, what? Now, Jason was a believer, but he's suffering for the cause of Christ. And the magistrates make him pay money as a security. He wasn't even the guy they were looking for. He didn't have any choice in the matter. But sometimes you will have a choice. Are you going to raise the ire? Are you going to heighten the conflict? Or as far as it depends upon you, are you going to live peaceably with all? We can't compromise the gospel. But you can present the gospel with grace. If you're being a jerk, then you're getting your desserts. But if you are presenting the gospel with grace as Christ has called you to and you suffer for it, praise God. What we read in 1 Peter chapter 2 earlier. Will your words point others to the truth that you have been Christ, with Christ? Will your deeds betray you as an ambassador of Jesus Christ? Or will your deeds betray your master? He fleshes this out in verse 16. You know, how am I to live at peace with all men? He says, do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Saint, there's no place for arrogance. There's no place for arrogance. Being haughty, uh, I'm looking down my nose at you. You know, I'm high above you looking down. I have, I have understanding and wisdom. You don't. Now, you might think, how can, if I'm being persecuted, if I'm the one under attack, how can I be haughty? Well, that warning comes over and over throughout the New Testament to not be prideful. You're being saved. You're elect. You're adopted into the family of the king. Very easy for a little kid to start getting too big for his britches simply because of the house he lives in. He can get his nose bloodied. That's why Paul tells the Philippian church in chapter 2, verse 3 of Philippians, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. It requires Christ to do this, this transformation of your life. How do I do this? I must see myself rightly before God. A saint saved only by God's good grace. And I must see the other person rightly before God, an image bearer of the living God, lost and in rebellion to Him. And then I see God's great grace to me, and I plead God's great grace for them. Do not be haughty. Never be wise in your own sight. But then he exhorts them, not only not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. 
And in truth, this might be one of the hardest things for a wealthy, white, white-collared Protestant. We want to immediately slither out by, uh, well, you know, the guy's probably just looking for money to get to Amarillo, and he really wants to use that money to drink. You know, he's not really wanting to go to Amarillo. He just wants the money so he can go buy booze. And so that's what we think. And so we aren't going to associate with the lowly that way. Might he do that? Yeah, he might. Am I exhorting you to throw money at him? No, not at all. But what do you know about him? Associate with the lowly, the good Samaritan. Man, that guy's all beaten up. I got a place to go. I got a place to go, people to see. Samaritan didn't care. He stopped to help the beaten man. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verse 46, says, If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? The passage we read in Luke earlier. Same passage, same idea. Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not the Gentiles do the same? He says to associate with the lowly. The word there means to walk with them to death. To walk with them to death. How far am I willing to go? Jesus called the dregs of society to the feast. Anybody who would come. He went to the whores and the demon-possessed that they might be saved. There are women who have ministries in Louisville, Kentucky, where these women go into strip clubs to minister to the women there. Jesus demanded in Luke 14, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. You will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Jesus said, compel people, compel people, urge people to come in that my house may be full. Compel people, come in. Are they going to listen to you? Maybe not, but associate with the lowly and bring them in. Not just the clean, not the ones that smell good, not the ones that are whole, not the ones that are wealthy, not the ones that are white. Yes, the poor you will have with you always, but that is not a call to neglect the poor. The poor and lowly who has had God's love lavished upon him will delight to lavish that same love upon others who are poor and lowly. God pours his love into a lost and dying world through saints who will go to a lost and dying world. Another way God shows his love and patience to a dying world is that he does not mete out justice in the moment. When a man sins, he doesn't strike them dead. So God is calling you to do the same. There is no place, verse 17, for paybacks. Repay 
no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Okay, we kind of already talked about, you know, the natural response is to do evil for evil. But Paul is clearly implying that you are having evil done to you. Okay, if you are having evil done to you, what should you do? Give thought. Husbands, if you're going to buy your wife a gift, give thought to the gift. Don't just run in and look for a sale. Give thought to the gift. Forethought. Think ahead. Paul is exhorting them to give thought, to do what is honorable, to do a good thing when you are repaid evil. Not merely bless, like we heard earlier, but do a good thing in the sight of all. Now, it does not say it does not say, do in the sight of all what is honorable. It says, do what is honorable in the sight of all. So again, grammar. The in the sight of all is the honorable. What is honorable in the sight of all? Are, things, are there things that are honorable, good, that all people would consider are good? Yeah. You go, how can that be? Because all of us are created in the image of God. You go, this is a good thing. It's a good thing to be kind. It's a good thing to take care. How do we know this? Well, the world has no standard by which they can know this. We know this because of the image of God in man. We are to do what is honorable before all men. Live peaceably with all men. The last point is we are to overcome evil with good. Verses 19 to 21. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That is so counterculture. That is so not normal. If I am in the... Th think of beach, San Diego. Undertoes on the beach. You get caught in an undertow, your natural response, hey, I'm being swept out to sea, is to start swimming against it. You aren't going to do it. You're not that good. Okay? You can't fight it. You can't overcome evil with evil. The only way to get out of an undertow or a rip current is to swim perpendicular to it or be swept out to sea. You could do that too. If you're a good floater, you can do that. Swim perpendicular to it. Get out of it. That's what you have to do. It's countercultural, and that's what Paul says. Don't overcome evil with evil. Overcome evil with good. How do I do that? Verse 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Trust the avenger. Trust God. Evil will come. 
And we know there's natural evil, tornadoes, those kinds of things, natural or man-made disasters where a bridge collapses and people die. Those are natural evils. But there is also man-inflicted evil. We don't repay evil. We don't seek to avenge myself. I don't seek to balance the scales of justice now. You don't have to. That's not your job. That's not your responsibility. Now, we know, Scripture says, we are to seek justice and to love mercy. Micah 6, 8. But God has given us authorities that are responsible for upholding justice. God has given us families wherein, within the families, there is supposed to be justice upheld. Within the church, there is supposed to be justice upheld. Within our governments at various layers, within our companies, there should be justice upheld. So when I am wronged, I don't try to balance the scales of justice myself. I trust those authorities. I may have justifiably to turn to them. I can turn to them. It doesn't say that. That's not what it's saying. I can appeal to the authorities for justice. But it is not mine to balance the scales of justice. And as I trust the authorities, in reality, I'm trusting the living God who has given all authority. We'll talk about that when we get to Romans 13. How do I overcome evil with good? I trust the avenger. And then I look for the empowerment in my own life of the avenger. In verse 20. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. You want me to what? You want me to be a... And we've, we've talked about this. I'm supposed to do what is honorable. I'm supposed to be a blessing to him. This is what we read in 1 Peter chapter 2. For this you have been called. Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Through the power of Christ, I am able to bless those who persecute me. I can bring blessings upon them. I can do what is honorable before them. It says that this is going to heat burning coals on them. We shouldn't be going, oh, sweet. Okay, now they're going to get their due heat burning coals on their head. No, the idea is repentance. My hope is that in my example, in my countercultural example in this world, as I live out my relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, that they may be smitten to their bosom, to their heart and soul, and turn to the living God and live. John tells us that the system of this world is passing away and it stands opposed to the living God, that it is empowered by Satan in the darkness of the human heart. 
It's his desire to see you destroyed, the church destroyed, the family destroyed, and the cross of Christ come to nothing. It's in this world that we live today. And Jesus calls us through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit and by the truth of his word to be different in this world. I can't do these things. Silly. But in Christ I can. And I have a gospel effect to those around me. Jesus told his disciples, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. This is about as ends of the earth as you get. We will not have an opportunity to provide a reason for the hope that is in us to an unbelieving world if we do not live out that relationship with Jesus Christ. When the power of Christ truly inhabits children, his children, in such peculiar manifestations as described by Paul to a dying and soul-starved humanity, they cannot help but take notice. Perhaps this is the greatest evangelistic impact you may have in doing something no more simple than loving one another as I have loved you by caring so may God empower us to be his hands and feet to a lost and dying world at such a time as this. Through the power of Christ in me, I can care. Through the power of Christ in me, I can live peaceably with all men. Through the power of Christ, I can overcome evil with good. Let's pray. Father God, help us, please. Give us the courage to be your hands and feet. Help us to have the courage to associate with the lowly. Help us to not strike back. Give us the power through the truth of your word and through our relationship with you to see others with your eyes. To lavish upon them the grace that you have lavished upon us even if they are cruel to us as we were cruel to the Savior. Oh God, Help us to this end. In Jesus' name, amen.